Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. It's something we do every single week. And I hope it's something we do every single week, not just out of tradition. And that is just before we meet up here and someone prays and they pass the emblems around, pass the trays around, we sing a song. And we often say something like, to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, let's sing number whatever. And I don't know how many different songs we sing as we prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. I would guess a dozen or so different songs are typically led in some, some type of rotation as our different song leaders do such a good job to help us think through the lyrics of those songs. But there's one of those songs that I wonder sometimes if we really know what we are singing even if we know what the title means. And it's a song that begins with these lyrics. Night with ebon pinion, brooded o'er the veil. All around was silent, save the night wind's wail. When Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood, prostrate in the garden, raised his voice to God. Now the opening lines to that song are words that obviously are very poetic. But if we're honest, the language is also somewhat old-fashioned. We might even say archaic, but how many of us talk about ebon pinion anymore? We don't, I'm not sure what it means from time to time. But when we understand what those words mean, they set, if you please, the mood for that song perfectly. Ebon is just a shorter way of saying ebony, darkness or blackness, because this was nighttime as that event happened. Pinion, when it's used in that way, is the idea of a wing, something shrouding over something as a bird might shroud its wing over its babies or chicks and bring them in. So you have the picture of darkness or blackness shrouding in over, covering over the situation, the scene that's happening there. Brooding, of course, is just something hanging in the air in sort of a, a very tense way. And a veil is just a valley, a place. And so you set the picture of this night that is so dark. It's as if the darkness is closing in, shrouding over, even brooding or hanging in the air in that valley. When Christ, the man of sorrows, in tears and sweat and blood, laid his face down, prostrate in the garden, and raised his voice to God. This morning, I want us to go there. We're calling our lesson this morning a powerful garden prayer. And I want us to think this morning about that text that Tanner read for us a few minutes ago from Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bible open to those verses, you'll have the outline right there in front of you. We're going to simply notice some things from that text to help us see 
the setting itself, where did this happen? When did it happen? Then we're going to think about the situation. What was going on in, in the heart, if you please, of Jesus himself? And then we'll think about the prayer itself, the supplication that he prayed on that night as we sing the night with Eben Pinion. But first of all, this morning, think with me about the setting. And of course, the setting, as far as time goes, is the night leading up to those illegal trials that would ultimately climax in the death of Jesus as he hung on Calvary's cross. And that certainly was one reason why this particular night seemed darker just in our mind or in our recollection as we picture it, because we, we know what's coming. We know the rest of the story, but as we'll point out in a few moments, so did Jesus. But also think of the timing of what had just happened. Because just prior to this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have Jesus and his apostles earlier having eaten the Passover feast. The feast that celebrated God's deliverance of his people way back those many centuries ago when they were getting ready to leave Egyptian bondage. But you remember that tenth plague that came. Our children study the ten plagues in Bible classes. And that tenth plague where the firstborn of every household was going to die unless, unless they followed the commands of God. And killed that Passover lamb. And spread the blood over the doorpost of the house. And then followed the commands to eat the feast to commemorate that night. That's the feast that Jesus and his apostles had just finished eating moments or a few hours earlier. So they had celebrated something that God had done in the past. But all the while Jesus ate that Passover feast with his his apostles, he knew that in mere hours he was going to become the Passover lamb. Can you imagine his emotions? He had been able to comfort his apostles as they ate that feast together by teaching them, as John chapters 14, 15, and 16 teach us, that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was going to come. He was going to guide them, the apostles, into all truth. But even in the midst of that, he had to send Judas Iscariot away, the one who was about to betray him. In fact, in just moments after Jesus would finish these prayers in the garden. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was troubled as he walked there to the garden and told the apostles that they would be scattered, even specifically telling Peter that before this night ended, he, Peter, would deny Jesus. And not just once, he would deny him three times before the rooster would crow, marking the beginning of the next day, the next morning. It's in that time frame, that set of emotions, that you come to this place. And that also helps with the setting to think about the place itself, Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane comes from an Aramaic word that basically means an oil press. And that makes sense when you know something about the place. Some of you may have even been there. It's still there. In fact, some suggest some of the trees that are there even now might have been there when Jesus was there on that night praying all those centuries ago. The place known as Gethsemane was on, or at least very near, the mount that we sometimes see in the New Testament referred to as the Mount of Olives. And some suggest that even in the days of Jesus, this portion of it where Jesus went to pray might have been closed off by fencing and by a gate. In fact, in Mark's account of this particular story, in Mark Mark chapter 14 and verse 32, Mark says that he came to a place called Gethsemane. But the word that Mark chose for the word place there is a word that literally means a parcel of ground, but it can also mean a region, which signifies there was something specific about this one. 
And some scholars suggest it's because it was fenced off. Which, by the way, may give light to a song that some of you sang growing up. There's a garden where Jesus is praying. There's a place that's wonderfully fair. And the end of that song in the chorus, you sang these words growing up. There my Savior awaits and He opens the gates to the beautiful garden of prayer. That may be why that line is in that particular hymn. It also may be why Peter, James, and John were called by Jesus to come further into the garden. Some have suggested the other apostles stayed near the gate almost as lookouts because it would be easy to see what was happening around that fence or around that gates, around that gate. But be that as it may, whether it was closed in a gate or not, a fence or not, it is a small garden area in a grove of olive trees. But in this place, it would seem from the name, there was also a press where olives were pressed out for their oil. And so during the daytime, this would have been a place of somewhat activity. People checking on the the trees and checking the olives and picking olives and possibly even going through the process of pressing out the olives for their oil. But at night, all that was there was the stillness of the trees and the quietness of those moments. This was deep into the night. And only the stillness of those old trees, and maybe, as we sing, the night wind's wail, was what was there. That's the setting. But now consider with me the situation. We've already mentioned this to some level, but I want to develop it further here. If you're in Matthew 26, the end of verse 27 tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And in fact, our Lord in the very next verse would come right out and say it to Peter, James, and John in verse 38 when he said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. The situation is that Jesus has known what is coming all along. But now, as the time leading to the trials and ultimately the crucifixion is drawing ever nearer and ever shorter, the very depths of our Lord's soul are hurting in the strongest and the deepest of ways. We need to always remember that all of the suffering, including the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. None of it was. As a song we sometimes sing suggests, you lived to die, rejected and alone. You know, in our most honest moments, you and I know in some generic general way that unless the Lord returns first, we will die. We don't know when it will be, but we know that that's the way of all the earth. It is appointed to man once to die. And after this comes the judgment, Hebrews would tell us. But Jesus carried far more than just some generic knowledge that someday out there he would die in some way. Consider for a moment what Jesus knew. Consider for the fact that Jesus knew when he was going to die. Several times during his earthly ministry, you might remember him looking at someone and saying, my time or my hour is not yet come or has not come. What he meant was the timing was not right for the culmination of his ministry. That is obviously the crucifixion. But when the time was right, you see him praying to the Father in John 17 and verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Can you imagine the weight on the shoulders of Jesus? Knowing the days and now the hours that he had left before his death. But Jesus knew when he was going to die, but I also want you to consider the fact that Jesus knew why he was going to die. A passage we'll study in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's very early in the ministry of Jesus. And He clearly speaks of being lifted up. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But He also says He died to bring belief, to offer salvation. Jesus knew that He was not dying because He had done something wrong. He knew he was not dying because he was paying for his own crimes or his own sins. He knew he was dying so that you and I might have hope, have something to believe in. So Jesus knew when he was going to die. Jesus knew why he was going to die. But folks, Jesus also knew how he was going to die. Before any of this ever happened, Jesus already knew that it would. Back in Matthew chapter 20, Verses 18 and 19, he had told his disciples as they were traveling to Jerusalem, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus did not just know that he would die He knew it would be by crucifixion and he knew the the torture, the suffering torture he would endure before the crucifixion. Jesus knew all of that and carried that. And so then it is no wonder that you read those words that he was sorrowful and that he was troubled. In fact, if you pay attention to the text, you're going to see six different ways that that emotion is set before us. We're told in verse 37, he was sorrowful. A very generic word in the New Testament that just simply means an inward grief. But while it's generic, it still hurts, doesn't it? Sorrow still hurts. We may not have good words for it, a good way to express it. But the grief was real within him. Also in verse 37, Jesus said he was troubled. The King James says he was very heavy. Maybe the best definition, as I have on the screens before you, would be the word distressed. W.E. Vine suggests that the word may come from the concept of negative knowing. In other words, you know something that brings you down. He even suggests in his word study that it can mean the idea of bewilderment. Not not that you're confused, but you're just out of sorts because of the knowledge that you have. Either way, there's an inward point that's troubling Jesus and hurting him in a very real way. And then in verse 38, we're told he was very sorrowful. A compound word that simply means an intense or exceeding sorrow, inward grief. But more than that, The sorrow was even unto death. The English Standard Version, by translating that way, translates that phrase literally, even unto death. It was a a turn of phrase. Some other translations and paraphrases try to give us more of a word picture of what Jesus meant by using that phrase. One paraphrase puts it this way. The sorrow on my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. The Common English Bible has, I'm very sad, it's as if I am dying. Jesus felt a sorrow that was not only real, it was crushing him. It was what Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And when he goes to pray, we're also told, number five, that he fell on his face. That's why we sing prostrate in the garden. 
raised his voice to God. Now, that was a common way to show respect to God, to physically prostrate oneself before God. But in this case, as Jesus is in the garden and all of this sorrow and all of this trouble is overwhelming him, can't you see that falling on his face was more than just simply getting down on his face? It was absolutely a physical reaction to what was happening. And while it's not found in Matthew, you do have a sixth sign of the sorrow As Luke tells us in Luke 22 and verse 44, that should say his sweat, not his blood, but his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Again, Luke 22 and verse 44. The agony that Jesus felt was so strong that it changed his body's physical capacity. And the stress was leading to the capillaries breaking open in his brow and blood coming out of the sweat glands. A condition that's while while rare is still real. In fact, Some of you may have seen just in the last two weeks or so a particular case of this actually happening in Europe where someone was admitted to the hospital because they were sweating blood out of stress. That's the setting. That's the situation. And so when we sing words like night with ebon pinion brooded o'er the veil, we're not being too dark. We're not being overly dramatic. We're not being too somber. This was a dark hour, literally, since it was the night, but is also a dark hour in every figurative way we could possibly think about. And with that as the backdrop, then let's consider number three, the supplication, the prayer that Jesus actually prays. It is certainly not the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus But prayer does not have to be lengthy in order to be meaningful to us in order to be acceptable to God the Father. Down in Matthew 26 and verse 44, we're told that what Jesus prayed before, he prays again. We don't know if we have the full text of the prayer. I I believe we do. I believe this is all Jesus prayed. You've been there before where you were so distraught, so hurt that you did not pray a long prayer, but you certainly prayed a fervent prayer. Some suggest that what we have for us in Scripture is simply the part of the prayer that Jesus repeated. And it is certainly possible. But I believe we have the full prayer. Verse 39 records the prayer for us as Jesus' face is to the ground when he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We're calling this third point the supplication, not just we have three S's this morning. We're calling this point the supplication because of what the Hebrews writer would later say. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, he would tell us that Jesus offered both prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And there's almost no way to have in our mind that he was not thinking of Calvary, or of Gethsemane, excuse me, when he wrote that. But in that one short prayer... As Jesus prays that one verse prayer, as we have it recorded for us, there are three things that Jesus shows. First, Jesus shows both respect and relationship. When he says, my father. Jesus is in agony. And things, at least from an earthly standpoint, are totally against him. And stacking up higher and higher as the, in the negative column, if you will, as the hours go on. Yet as he prays to God, he still calls him Father. There's respect in that. But there's also relationship in that. Jesus does not come to God's throne in this deep, dark moment with any sort of arrogance, And with any sort of lack of respect, because things are so against him and and so negative in the moment. But Jesus still comes before the throne as a son comes before his father. May I remind all of us 
with a very simple fact. When you and I pray to God, even in moments of struggle and strain, there is still a relationship because He's our Father. But there must be respect because He's still God. This is the time to trust the Father. But it's also time to remember He is our Father. He loves us. But He's also God. And He's in charge. So there is that respect and relationship. But then also in this prayer, there's the request. The request Jesus made literally puts the fate of all humanity in the balance. As He prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Have you ever considered the import of that part of the prayer? What if God had answered yes? We could go home because our hope is lost. Our hope is over. The scheme of redemption for mankind would be completely done away with all in that moment. But what does Jesus mean by talking about this cup? Let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures perfectly. And so he used that word picture from those scriptures that was so commonly known, just just part of his almost spiritual DNA. The cup is an appointment that God keeps with a person. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You may think of the more, most famous time this idea is used in Scripture is Psalm 23 and verse 5, where David says in a positive way, my cup overflows. That's a good thing. God's overfilling the cup with blessing. But more times than not, when the word is used of God's cup, it's not positive. It's the wrath of God being poured out upon people. For example, Psalm 75, beginning in verse 6. For not from the east nor from the west... And not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah uses the same terminology or picture, I should say, in Isaiah 51 and verse 17. And it's in the midst of telling God's people that they would be judged, but there will be hope. But he says this in Isaiah 51 verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus uses that same word picture here. Yes, Jesus was going to suffer horrific, excruciating pain through the beatings and the scourgings and ultimately through the crucifixion. He knew that. But Jesus wanted removed the wrath of God, the cup of God to be removed. He knew that he was going to be feeling the full weight of the wrath of God for sin as he went through that suffering. To state the matter bluntly, I don't say this lightly at all, I have no idea how heavily Jesus' mind was weighing on at that point in time. And I'm not sure I can. Because Jesus knew He was not just going to feel nails and whips. He was going to feel God's wrath poured out. And so his request shows his humanity. Please, take this away. But aren't you thankful that there's more to the prayer? 
because he also prays with a resolve. Not as I will, but as you will. Even though those words are very few in number, those words are the reason why you and I have a hope of being saved. Jesus was resolved, even in this time of immense sorrow and trouble, to follow through with fulfilling the plan of God, even if it meant suffering on the cross, and even if it meant feeling that full weight of God's wrath, bearing the sin of the world. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus talked often about being resolved to follow the plan of God. At least three times, just in the Gospel of, according to John, you see him say those things. John 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish or finish his work. John 5 and verse 30. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These words prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane prove those statements to be absolutely true through the darkest of possible moments. With Calvary now hours away, Jesus, knowing that's coming through this powerful prayer, shows that resolve in an absolutely unreal, tremendous way. As God's plan had to unfold, and it had to unfold through his suffering and through his death. And after finding his apostles asleep, he prayed a second prayer, a very similar prayer, in verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And it's then we're told he prayed those same words yet another time. And some have suggested the wording of that second prayer, and we're left to assume the third prayer, that we see a a growing acceptance, if you will, of Jesus, of what was before him, and possibly even a reminder of the peace that we can pray when we're going through the most difficult of times. But whether or not we see that in the progression of these prayers, we still see in these short words, not my will, but yours be done, we see the resolve that Jesus had on his heart and his will throughout his whole life on earth to do what he came to do, to accomplish, finish, to telestai. It is finished. And that resolve is the only reason you and I have hope. Moments before we pray and pass trays that have some bread in them, some fruit of the vine in them, we often sing words, night with ebon pinion. But if all we ever see when we sing those words are the first couple of lines that set the scene for us and help us remember it was a dark night and, and things were difficult and things were dark, If that's all we see when we sing that song, we've missed the point. Because later in that song, we sing the prayer. Abba, Father, Father, if indeed it may, let this cup of anguish pass from me, I pray. Yet if it must be suffered by me, thine only Son, Abba, Father, Father. Let thy will be done. In those words, in that powerful garden prayer, we gain perspective into the humanity of Jesus because he knew what was coming. And he did not want to face the the agony and the wrath of God. But we should also praise him for his divinity in being true to the plan of God all the way through Calvary's cross.
the one they sing about as the man of sorrows, who prayed there in agony and turmoil, is the one who did the will of the Father. And he did so for me. And so it is right that at other times before we pass those same trays, we sing, When my love to Christ grows weak, when for deeper faith I seek, then in thought I go to thee, garden of Gethsemane. There I walk amid the shades while the lingering twilight fades. See the suffering friendless one weeping praying there alone and I have to ask myself when I sing the words he was the friendless one can I then turn around and honestly say I'll be a friend to Jesus. My salvation hung in the balance of what happened under those tree limbs that night. And praise God for one who said, not my will, but yours be done. Because without that, I have no hope. Without that, mankind has no hope. Without that, you have no hope. This morning, when you think about that one who was weeping and praying there alone as the friendless one, Can you honestly say, I'll be his friend? I'll be a friend to Jesus. My life for him, I'll give. I'll be a friend to Jesus until my years shall end. He's told you how. If you love me, he said, you'll keep my commandments. He's told us what to do. He's paid the price. Are you ready this morning to respond to him? To come to him in obedience. To turn from sin. To confess him as Lord. And to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why he went to Calvary's cross. Is to give you that hope. Brother or sister in Christ. Are you living like a friend? to the one who on that night was friendless. Are you being faithful to him? This morning, if you need to become a Christian, or if you as a Christian need to return in faithfulness or for encouragement, we invite you to come to the one who prayed for you that night. As together we stand and as we sing.